Ben, Ben Avery here from the Comic Book Time Machine. Just to uh, quickly remind you that these following episodes were actually taken from a larger episode and cut up into more easily indexed, smaller portions. So there are going to be times when I talk about, you know, next in this episode or previously in this episode, because originally these were released as long episodes that covered a single month of the comics. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 39, Star Wars number 8, the beginning of cover date February 1978. Hello, and welcome back to the comic book Time machine i'm ben ben avery comic book fan comic book reader comic book collector and comic book writer and i am here well to read comic books and to discuss comic books and so we are going to go back in time to november of 1977 and pick up some comic books off the spinner rack at our local 7-eleven or well, as it was for me, the local stop shop, and it was spelled with uh, two P's and an E on both words, so stoppy, shoppy. And we are going to see what's on the shelf that Marvel is publishing that is part of their you know licensed science fiction books. And it's a heavy month this month, a very, very heavy month this month. We have a 60-cent comic book called... Marvel Classics Comics, First Men on the Moon, promises 52 full pages with no ads. We have another book that's a dollar, a dollar, Man from Atlantis, number one. It is a giant size bonus issue, first time in comics. It promises underwater action. I see a killer whale about to eat a lady. I see a guy with webbed fingers. And a yellow Speedo who's swimming, and also he's in the background there fighting a bug-eyed underwater guy. Yes, one full dollar. And uh, it is not promising no ads. In fact, there are plenty of ads, but there are also articles and pinups and stuff like that. I'm excited about this one. This is a short run. I know that. I don't know how many issues. I can't remember how many I bought when I was lining up these... Uh, my, my reading order here, but uh, this was a nice surprise when I opened the bag last episode. And then uh, The Human Fly, 35 cents. Star Wars, another 35 cent book. Godzilla, another 35 cent book. So we're up to a dollar five there with those three books, plus John Carter. And that puts us up to what, a dollar five, a dollar 40 now. So a dollar forty, two dollars and forty cents plus that's we're talking three dollars worth of comics here. Did I miss anything? I don't know. 
I don't think I did. But we're talking $3 worth here. Uh, we're talking about <laughs> just a lot, uh, a lot of stuff. We've got something based on a novel, something based on a TV show, something based on movie, something based on an actual real-life stuntman. And I think I have spent enough time talking about that and kind of, you know, we just have so much to do. We're just going to jump into it right now, starting with Star Wars Issue 8, the second issue past the movie adaptation. Okay, I've got to say now, what happened? Did I miss something? What in the world is going on here? Uh, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in my my uh, Star Wars omnibus, I'm just turning the page over and... Uh, you know, there's the last panel of the previous issue, and then there's the cover for issues, issue eight, which says Star Wars at last beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy, that promise, you know, it says uh, eight against a world. And there's indeed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight characters on the cover. Two of them are Han Solo and uh, what looks to be Chewbacca. Um, and then it also says extra in this issue, the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker. So they're promising us two things, eight against a world and the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker. But uh, then I start into the issue and the art is completely different. It's a completely different style. The characters are not matching. Uh, it's just I I feel like I've missed, you know, like a handful of issues or a, like I, I, I mean, you know, last issue was issue one of one story arc, and this is issue two of a different, completely different story arc. It's just, it's just weird. Now, issue number seven was, uh, the artist is Howard Chaikin and the co-plotter, and then it's Frank uh, Springer, who's the embellisher, which is, you know, typically would be the inker, but based on what I know about how things were working with Chaikin, um, I'm wondering if there's a lot more than inking going on here. <laughs> Uh, because then this issue here is, again, Roy Thomas is the writer-editor. Howard Chaikin is the artist and co-plotter. And then Tom Palmer is embellisher-in-residence, with uh, Tom Palmer also being the colorist. And then Jay Costanza is the letterer, and Archie Goodwin is the consulting editor. But I, I'm looking at this, and I'm just thinking, the, the here's the, the most jarring thing. Uh, the characters in the last panel of the last issue are wearing these green robes type of thing that um, looks like they're wearing maybe bathrobes or something. I don't know. But, you know, the, past their knees. And then in the next page, you know, Tom Palmer did the colors for this issue. He did not, I guess, no, it was Carl Gafford who did the colors for the last issue. It's like you had these just two different people. Obviously, well, it's not like two different people. It's obviously two different people. But they didn't, there, there was no connection there. Because the the guys, the three guys who were standing there who were from last issue, who were asking for Han Solo's help and had a proposition for him, they look completely different. They are different characters altogether. They are wearing different clothing. They are wearing different colored clothing. It's not even like they said, okay, well, they're going to wear a different tunic, but we're going to make the tunic, uh, we're going to keep the tunic green anyway. And and then there's this other character who just kind of comes out of nowhere who's attacking Han Solo from behind. And it's it's jarring. If you are reading this back to back, it's jarring. If, you know, 
if I was buying this off the stand, which, you know, I'm obviously I'm going back in time to get this now. So it, it's a different thing, but, uh, you know, looking back in time, but if you were buying it off the, off the stand, you bought the last issue, you bought this next issue, you sit down to read issue number eight, you're probably going to flip back at issue number seven to see, you know, to remind yourself of where you left off. And it's, it's, like I said, it's a jarring, jarring difference in art style and in character design. It is weird. And there's some, there's some very weird art choices in here too. One of those weird art choices is that some of the characters are drawn fairly realistically and Chewbacca actually on the cover, it's not very good, but, and I, I didn't look up who to see who did the cover, but, uh, in the actual artwork here, the, by, by Chaikin and, and Palmer, Chewbacca looks pretty good. And you know, Darth Vader, who's hard to draw, uh, he's in one panel of this, but he looks fairly decent. Uh, he, it's just, there's just some weird art choices with the, the panel layouts and the, those characters, most of the characters look fairly realistic, but then the, the main villain, he looks like a complete joke. He, the way he's drawn in the, in the, the first time you see him, it's, it feels like a caricature. It feels like a, a complete caricature with a weird, um, oh, what's it called? Foreshortening with his legs and it's just a very odd book here with the art um the writing itself also has some odd stuff and i'm kind of giving away my feelings about this but you know this is based on the magnificent seven this is not just based on the magnificent seven this clearly is taking the magnificent seven and rewriting it with just a change in setting and let's put han solo and chewbacca into it uh and that's not bad it's a classic story and it works and it has worked in many, many different places, but I'll talk more about that later, but there's just some things that Roy Thomas does here in this issue that it feels like, I don't know. It feels a little too jokey. It feels like, and it's not the characters telling the jokes. It's the characters are the jokes. It's there's just a, a problem of tone. Uh, the story itself. I mean, Last issue was a really bad cliffhanger. It was unexciting. Um, uh, Chewie had two lady friends that he was going to go off with, and Han had a blue lady that he was macking on who disappeared when three uh, short men in green robes offered Han a proposition. Suddenly, those three men, uh, three short men in green robes, become three regular sized men in in uh, you know Luke Skywalker style farming clothes, and. Han is being attacked by big green lizard guy who is the blue lady's boyfriend. And Han talks big when he's, you know, answering back to him, but uh, then realizes Chewie's not there to back him up. And big green lizard guy wipes the floor with, with Han until Chewie returns from his romantic interlude with those two ladies. And, and then, you know, it, this whole scene here, the setup, it's kind of funny. It's kind of goofy, but it's not real bad. It's, it's not going into, you know, jokey joke territory. It, it feels like, you know, Han Solo is full of bravado until he realizes that Chewbacca is not there. And then when Chewbacca does come, the resolution again, kind of fun, kind of funny and big green lizard guy. He is out of the picture. Um, for the time being, he's actually going to be a well, he's the primary antagonist, I guess, here. I At one point, I thought maybe he was going to join Han Solo's band of men, but that's not exactly what happens with him. Anyway, uh, he goes to talk to those the, the three peasants who have a problem, and their problem is that they need a protector, a champion. 
and the the person that they need a champion to or that they need the protector to protect them from is a man named um he's uh he he leads a group of cloud riders and this man's name is Sergi X Arrogantus the arrogant one uh he and his men are outlaws and I'm just going to go ahead and read what the the men actually say to Han Solo here from from the actual text here. He and his men, outlaws who live in the mist-shrouded hills outside our village, come forth each year at about this time to exact tribute from us who have barely enough to feed ourselves. They stampede our panthas, which we raise for food and transportation. If we try to resist, they will burn our meager crops, which scarcely feed us well, in the best of years, and they carry off our wives, our daughters, merely to amuse themselves. I have said that they are devils, Master Solo, and there is no other word that fits them so well. We have little money, but we can offer you food and shelter. You must help us, Masters, or our village will soon cease to be. And then Han Solo, he's really snarky. It's weird. He's snarky, but then there's a few times where he says something that was really, well, here's, here's the answer. He says, uh, you know, the guy just said that our, our village will cease to be. And Han Solo says, yeah, that'd be a real loss to the galaxy. All right. Uh, and then the, the guy says, beg pardon. Ah, skip it. We'll take the job. Like, this is, this is what I'm talking about with the writing. I, I feel almost like it's not being taken seriously here. Like we're doing a parody almost, or we're doing something, you know, it, it's a ripoff. We already know that, but, um, you know, there's a couple times where he does that though, where he'll say something that's really inappropriate, kind of mean spirited, but then he's like, yeah, forget about it. I don't really mean it because we're going to, I'm going to help you anyway, uh, because you don't have good, very good hearing. I don't have to worry about what I just said. Anyway, Han Solo decides he wants to, um, I mean, very quickly, he's decided I'm going to take the job and I need people to help. And so, um, he, he, uh, puts out the word and there, then the next scene is people standing in line outside his door. They're coming in to kind of do a tryout and Han Solo is sitting in his, this is, this is the weird art choice. Han Solo is sitting in his room, in his hotel room at this cantina, just in, in his pants. He's just not wearing a shirt. It's just kind of weird. Like what <laughs> was this scripted like that? Was it an art choice? And he spends the entire time shirtless as people are coming to his room to say, I want to help you. Um, here, here's the people who come to try out and uh, to be part of the magnificent eight against the galaxy. There's Hedgie who needs a job for reasons he'd rather not get into. He doesn't have a blaster. Han's not really interested in having this guy come with him because the guy's not armed, but then he actually shoots quills out of his body. Um, like a, a porcupine, a superhero porcupine kind of thing. Uh, so he's in Amaza, who is a woman from Han's past who can apparently handle a blaster. Um, she has cat eyes and this weird kind of poofy puff shoulder shirt thing. It's it's just weird, but she's, she's someone that Han knows and they have a little bit of a back and forth and she's in. And then we have, uh, and here's where we get a little more wacky. Uh, Don Juan Quixote. Uh, you know, like Obi-Wan, Don Juan, Quixote, a Jedi Knight, uh, who's a little bit crazy. He's 
uh, and the way he's drawn, he's meant to look like he's he's just not quite right in the head. He says he's a Jedi Knight. He doesn't really show that he has any control over the Force, but he definitely says that he has control over the Force. Um, he has a lightsaber. He does, and but he doesn't understand that uh, Darth Vader destroyed the Jedi years ago. The Jedi have been outlawed since the rise of the Empire. Um, but Han and, and Chewie, they recognize that he's crazy, but he won't get in the way too much. <laughs> he then bows down in front of Han with his sword. I mean, it's clearly, I mean, this is Don Juan. Obviously, Don Juan Quixote. Uh, it's not even hidden. So we're just ripping off things left and right and not even trying to hide it. Next, we have Jackson. A, um, the way he describes himself is a lepus carnivorous, a meat-eaten, rocket-riding rabbit to you. Uh, and he proves that he is worthy of joining the team because Big Green comes back and cuts in line in front of him. And when he does that, he uh, gives him this nice kick with his great big giant rabbit foot and knocks that big green lizard guy down the stairs. And yeah, so we have green rabbit guy who's six feet tall and he is, he's on, he's in the team. Uh, and like I said, his name is Jackson. And, and this is someone that gets pointed to often when people talk about the ridiculousness of the star Wars comic books is that you have this, this uh, six foot tall green rabbit who looks a lot like Bugs Bunny. We'll get into that and as well. We've, I do have a quote from Roy Thomas about why and how he created this character. Finally, we have numbers uh, five and six, which are Jim, the Starkiller Kid, and his tractor robot, FE9Q, also known as FE. And Han Solo can see the use of the robot. But Jim, well, Jim, he, he has to prove himself and how is he going to do that? He's just a kid. But Han Solo gets to thinking. It kind of reminds him of, of Luke. And speaking of Luke, the cover did promise the deadly mission of Luke Skywalker. So as Han thinks about Luke, we move over to Yavin 4, uh, where Luke is getting ready to get his mission. His deadly mission, which is to go into a spaceship and he's going to go find a new base for the Rebel Alliance. Now, Leia wants to go with him, uh, but she's not allowed to because she's a symbol now and a leader now that her father is is gone. And I like it. I, I like it. they didn't spend a lot of time here. Um, you know, Leia gets just a couple panels, but she's you know, she thinks back then about what she's been through and she finally has time to think. And but then we leave her and we go to Luke, who is thinking about what happened in the movie, uh, basically gives us a nice little recap and like I said, this is where you see Darth Vader and Darth Vader is hard to draw, but done well here. It's Chewbacca on the cover who's really hard to draw and who is very obvious that whoever is drawing him uh, just hasn't spent a lot of time looking at him. Now, we're, we're talking about this 30 years later, right? Uh, no, more than that. I mean, we're almost, what, 35 years? It doesn't matter. We're, we're talking about this a long time later. But... Uh, back then, I, I still can't help but think man, there's got to be some photo reference, you know, that that, that cover, man. He, Chewbacca just looks like he's his hair is kind of styled out into these uh, straight little pony. I don't even know how to how to describe what he's done with his hair there. 
He's just got this nicely muscular body, but then just this weird, uh, weird hairstyle coming off his head there. Anyway, um, as Luke reminisces about the previous movie and does a flashback, which is basically, you know, just to remind you what happened in that movie. Uh, he thinks about how Han Solo rescued him from Darth Vader. And as he reminisces about Han, well, speaking of Han Solo, we're going to go back and he now has his eight. He's letting Jim come on because, you know, Jim reminds him of, of that other farm boy. But now they've got visitors and it's Sergi X. Sergi X has been tipped off by Big Green. And, uh, you know, it's kind of nice. Big Green, he, he shows up. He is mean to Han Solo. They have a little bit of a fight. He gets thrown out the window by Chewbacca. Then he gets kicked down the stairs by Jackson. And it's nice. It's a nice little setup. You know, Uh, he needs a job and he's going to get in line to get a job with Han Solo. Can't get that. So he's going to go off and get some money from Sergi X. It's nice. It's, It's a nice little thing. And I'll give that to the writing here from Roy Thomas. I really like that element. Other elements here, I'm not so much such such a big fan of, but uh, Sergi X offers Han uh, more money. He offers Han more money than the the people of the village could ever give him, and Han has an interesting answer. He says, "They're giving us all they can, friend, and that's the best pay I've ever had. A sand rat like you could never begin to match their price." And I'm reminded actually of the the. The uh, parable of the woman, actually, it's not a parable, but uh, the woman in in the Gospels who Jesus is watching and all the Pharisees are like dumping tons of money into the offering uh, cup or I don't know what what it was, but outside the temple, they're they're putting money into the offering basket or whatever. And then this woman comes and just drops in these two coins, but it's everything she had. And Jesus points out, you know, they've given so much money, but she is given so much more because of, you know, percentage of income versus percent, you know, how much she's given. And that's the same kind of thing here is that these guys have offered just a lot for them. And it makes me wonder why is Han taking the job here? Because that's the the one thing I I don't really see a good reason for him to turn and say, yeah, I'm going to take this job because uh, I want to help you guys out. Instead, he's just kind of snarky and mean to them. Then he takes the job and then, you know, he gets offered more money and he's, well, I'm still going to take the job because um, he doesn't say anything like it's the right thing to do. I mean, he, he doesn't say anything. It just, it almost feels like he's just doing it to be contrary. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a lone wolf. I'm a rebel. I'm going to do whatever anyone else expects me to not do. I'm just going to do it, you know? But um, anyway, the guy says, you know, don't come. I'll give you money. Han says, no, I'm going to go work for them. And here's a tip for you. Why don't you just leave the village alone now? Because, uh, you know, we're not going to back down. And of course, then Sergi X says no way. And he leaves. And the conflict is set up now. It is locked. It is loaded. We are ready for the next issue. Uh, much better uh, setup than the, than the last issue set up. And, and it's not bad. Like I said, we've seen the story before. We've seen it in Seven Samurai. We've seen it in The Magnificent Seven. We've seen it in the seven magnificent gladiators. We've seen it in the three amigos. We've seen it in the magnificent seven ride again or return or whatever it is. There's four movies in that series and a TV show. Then I just read that there's actually a a movie coming in 2017. They'll star Chris Pratt. Uh, 
and Vincent D'Onofrio actually, I guess, returning from their pairing up in Jurassic World. Um, we we've also seen it in The Bug's Life. It's a decent story about people who are helpless, looking for someone to stand and fight for them, and they find these people who are skilled but down on their luck, or who um, don't have as much to offer as as what they're looking for, but they're going to go and help anyway because they know it's the right thing to do. It's a good story worth stealing and worth revising. And especially if you're going to steal it and, and use it and give it a twist, you know, but what's happening here is that it's being stolen and there's two problems here. And one, uh, I, I have to lay this at the feet of Roy Thomas, the story feels like a parody and it feels like he's not taking this seriously at the very least. It feels like he doesn't understand the tone of what he just got done working on with the movie. Uh, Or maybe it's just us in hindsight, looking back and saying, okay, there was one movie. The book splinter of the mind's eye has not even come out yet. The only stories that we have from star Wars is the movie and this. And so maybe I'm looking at this and saying, well, after this came Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and all these comics, all these books, all these stories, and the tone was never like this, except for maybe on the droids cartoon show or maybe on the Ewoks TV specials. I don't know. But uh, it just feels like there's just no idea of tone. And I feel like he's just kind of going through the motions here and, and maybe he was. And then the second thing is the art and what happened there. Well, again, I, I've got some quotes here from Roy Thomas's article in alter ego that he wrote, uh, where he, he actually says, um, as I, pro- as this progressed, he says, I came to feel that Howard Chaikin for whose artwork I'd always had the utmost respect, wasn't giving his all on the pencil layouts. As I learned later, he was actually being ghosted part of the time by our mutual friend, Alan Cooperberg, who is doing a credible job, a creditable job, but Chaikin is Chaikin. Nobody else is. And there's truth there. I mean, Chaikin is really, really good. Uh, now, our next issue will be Howard Chaikin and Tom Palmer. And then, you know, looking ahead, um, it's not until issue um, number 11 where Carmen Inf- Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin are working on on Star Wars. Uh, but this is kind of as we go along, um, uh, Roy Thomas is realizing that, yeah, you know what? He's not really doing all the, you know, the whole job himself and not giving it his all. And, you know, I really have to agree. Uh, I think Roy Thomas is definitely giving more than, than Howard Chaikin here. Uh, but here's let's talk about Jackson a little bit. And this is what Roy Thomas says about creating the character of Jackson. He says, George particularly disliked one of the seven being a six foot alien who resembled the green bugs bunny in space gear. In the latter instance, I have been inspired in part by seeing a porky pig looking alien in the cantina sequence, either in the rough cut or on some production schedules at some early point. I don't remember if that alien appears in the finished movie, since that part of the film contains several 11th hour inserts of other, more colorful looking aliens sitting in dark corners, and something may have been cut to make room for them. I had figured my green rabbit, Jackson, wasn't really much weirder than a Wookiee, but obviously George, as the creator of the Star Wars mythos, felt differently. 
I respected George and Charlie, but this line of conversation was beginning to annoy me. Um, and so there you have it. There's the explanation. He saw Porky Pig and said, why not Bugs Bunny, I guess. So, yeah, so this is an infamous issue, uh, in part because of the Green Rabbit, in part because of the, the tone uh, shift of, in the artwork, and then also a little bit of tone shift, although there was still some of the stuff, this kind of goofy stuff going on in the previous issue. But all things considered, uh, I feel like I may have wasted you know, some of my uh, dilithium in going back in time or something to get this one. It really, it's, it's a relic is what it is. It is a, uh, an artifact of its time and I'm happy to go and revisit and see this stuff. But when I, and, and that's part of why I'm doing this, you're reading these star Wars comics is because of the history and yeah, it's not Canon, but it's star Wars comic book, Marvel Canon. Uh, it's part of that, that 107 issues or 111. If you include the return of the Jedi, uh, four issue series. It's part of that canon. And so it belongs to that. But there's also the history there. This is the first expanded universe stories to be published and to be seen by anyone. And this is what comes out is <laughs> this green rabbit in a ripoff of the Magnificent Seven. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I'm going to stop talking here about this. Um, it's an important issue in history. But I'm not enjoying myself. And that's the one other thing is I want to read these comics and be drawn into a science fiction story that I can enjoy myself in. And this so far is not it. Last issue was closer because the whole the whole thing with the co coffin and we're going to keep going. We're going to fight and you know we're going to make sure that the spacer gets the burial he deserves. But here where you have these crazy characters, I don't know what they're going to do with with. Don Juan and with Jackson and, and all that. But uh, I'm not terribly excited about the next couple of issues. Uh, so I'm going to stop there, though, and, and we're going to move on to to some of the other stuff that, that we have here in, in store, including, you know, the, the first men on the moon, which is, you know, that's that's a classic of sci fi by H.G. Wells. And we have, you know, but I think we're going to. Yeah. Let's go ahead and, 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 and do Human Fly, and, and let's get that out of the way. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, we get Human Fly out of the way with Human Fly issue number six from February 1978.